He's out on his uh, book tour right now out in L.A. today, one of the great uh, sports writers, of course, with Sports Illustrated. You see him on uh, Brian Gumbel's HBO Sports Show. Also hear him on NPR. And a great pleasure to welcome uh, Frank DeFord with us today. His new book is called Over Time, My Life as a Sports Writer. And, uh, Frank, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, I'll tell you, Frank, it's, uh, and I've said this many times, <coughs> excuse me, it's a great life if uh, you're fortunate enough to do what you want to do uh, all your life. And I, I, I think there are very few people that can walk away at the end of a career or near the end of a career and said every day was a pleasure. This is exactly what I wanted to do. I think that's a pretty accurate appraisal. There were a few days there when the airplanes weren't flying or the <laughs> weather was bad, but generally speaking, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm very blessed in the in the career that I've had. Don, you and I were just talking before we went on the air. I, I didn't realize this. Uh, why don't you kind of tell the, the listeners, I know we kind of mentioned it to Frank a little bit before we went on the air, but uh, you have a connection, uh, or at least a relative of yours has a connection with Frank. Yeah, in the very early days, uh, my aunt was uh, very much connected with Sports Illustrated. She was fortunate enough to work for Time Incorporated, and when they came up with the concept of uh, – an all-sports magazine, although it's changed a little bit now than what it was years ago. But uh, she was on the ground floor and, and uh, enjoyed it very, very much. And, and I know that uh, she was connected with Frank. He talked about it a little bit ago. And so they have a little history together, right, Frank? Yeah, she was, she was sort of my first boss. She was in charge of all the reporters. Uh, her name was Honor Fitzpatrick. And uh, we called it the bullpen. <laughs> Those of us, it was the lowest uh, of the low. You were down there checking and researching. That's how I started. But um, luckily, I could move on from there very quickly. So as much as I adored Honor, I was glad to get away from her. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, when you look over your, your entire career, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing to pinpoint. Uh, imagine there are a couple of things that, that you point out in the book, as I mentioned when we started the show. Uh, Doug's had a chance to get the book. I have not as yet, and uh, so I'll be very interested to read it. But how about a couple of uh, little things to start us off that uh, come to the top of your mind? What I tried to do was to uh, talk about myself. You have to do that. If you're going to write a memoir, you have to talk about yourself. But I always figured uh, the people that I met and worked with through the years were a whole lot more interesting than I was, and so I tried as much as possible to to write, yes, about myself, but my my affiliation, my association with with, with athletes, going going back to, well, really the first one was Bill Bradley because Bradley was a freshman at uh, Princeton when I was a senior there. So I like to say that I discovered Bradley, but even better, <laughs> as I've told Bill through the years, he, um, he gave my uh, career a real springboard because I told everybody at Sports Illustrated about this unknown kid, and when he turned out to be even better than a, than that, it made me look very, very smart indeed. <laughs> so, so, well, Butch Van Bredekoff knew how good he was, because uh, at that time I lived right outside, right outside of Princeton, worked for a radio station in Trenton, and uh, so I had a chance to see probably 90% of Bill's games, and uh, uh, got the opportunity, as you did, to interview him and talk to him, and He's a fascinating person. But he, see, he was tucked away then in those old days. The freshmen weren't allowed to play on the varsity. So Bill was, uh, so I saw him as a freshman. That's, 
that's where I got the jump on, on, on everybody else. And they actually let me, at Sports Illustrated, one of the very first stories that I wrote about was about Bill. And, and so he turned out, as I said, to be even more extraordinary than I had, I had promised. So I guess Bradley was the beginning of my professional career. And uh, he certainly has lived up to everything. And there were a lot more to follow. As I say, that's a great place to start. <laughs> Bill Bradley was uh, was just a unique individual, and uh, I'll tell you. Sometimes that, it's uh, better to be lucky than good. That's an old expression, but it certainly was true. Or to, or to be in the right place at the right time. And I had right. that happen a few times. And well, I, no I think it happened to him very, because he could have gone to Duke very easily instead of going to Princeton, and that would have changed not only you, but that would have changed him as well. My whole life. If Bradley had gone to Duke, it would change my whole life. Well, I hope, I hope that my <laughs> success did not hinge entirely on on Bill Bradley. I was very lucky. I said being in the right place at the right time because when I got to Sports Illustrated, there was nobody there who was much interested in basketball. It was kind of looked down upon. And I got the opportunity very early on, no thanks to many thanks to Mr. Bradley, to to become the basketball writer. And so, at a very early age, I was covering, you know, the NBA and and, and college basketball both. And those were those were fascinating times. The NBA was really a struggling backwater enterprise, but there were some great ball players and guys who could be stars today, and not only that, very intriguing, very very interesting guys. Russell, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, pretty good crowd. I agree. I wish they would mentioned Elgin Baylor a little bit more often. I broadcast the 76ers for a great number of years, and uh, so I had a chance to see everybody along the line, and George McGinnis and Doc and the rest, but uh, Elgin Baylor always comes to mind when they talk about the greatest uh, you know, forwards in the game. Sometimes he gets overlooked, and I can't understand that's right. how that's possible. Well, I think it's because he came so early, and he never did win a championship. He was always in the shadow of um, of the Celtics, and, and how many times they made the finals. And the the saddest thing about Baylor is that the year that he retired, he finally was just so old, and he quit in like October, early in the season, and that was the year the Lakers went on to to, to win finally. Uh, <laughs> A championship. He missed. I think they won 33 in a row that year. Right. Yeah. It was right after. It was right after Elgin finally quit, only because he'd just grown old. But uh, Gil. Right after Wilt got there. It was a couple of years. Everybody thought as soon as Wilt got there they would win, but they didn't. They didn't win right away. No. Matter of fact, uh, I write a lot about Wilt in the in the book because I had a very interesting relationship with Will. Is that I didn't really like Will in the beginning. He didn't like me. He threw me out of a locker room once. Not bodily, of course, <laughs> or I wouldn't be here, but um, I really didn't get to know Will until after he was finished playing. And, and I, He was an intriguing guy. He's, uh, as I say in the book, in, in over time, he, he's the only athlete, the only great athlete I know, who, who seemed to be happier when his playing days were over. It was so much was expected of Wilt. It was as if he just could not live up to everything uh, that that was expected of him, and, and I think he was more comfortable when, when he was finally finished playing and could enjoy life. You know, I'd have to agree with that. I think that, of course, I follow him from Overbrook High right on through, and uh, I would have to agree with you that uh, 
uh, Alex Hannon could control him a little bit better than anybody else could, but, but Wilt was his own person, and uh, uh, I think he had a lot of confusion within himself as to exactly what he wanted to do and when he wanted to do it, and I agree with you. He's much more relaxed. If you saw him at a tennis tournament or you saw him somewhere after he retired, he was uh, much more amiable to talk to and uh, to sort of get a laugh from. You're right about Alex Hannum. Hannum was a, um, was there were always stories that they had come to blows. I never believed that because I don't think Wilt was that confrontational. And it's like so many big guys, um, he was not looking for a fight. But the but the, the year that the that Hannum was a coach, he was coach of Wilt twice. Once out in in San Francisco and then back in Philadelphia. And the year that they finally broke Russell's streak and won. Uh, 67, I want to say. Um, that might have been the greatest team ever. That was an extraordinary team. Billy Cunningham, who's a Hall of Famer, came off the bench. That's right. That's he was the sixth man. They voted it. The, they voted it the team of the first 50 years. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised at that. The, the, uh, Chet Walker and Luke Jackson were the two. I remember the two starting forwards, and then Cunningham came in, and, and Larry Costello, who was sort of the last of the set shots. Right. Once one of the guards and Hal Greer was another Hall of Famer. Was he? Was the other? I mean, that was just an extraordinary team. But um, and Bianchi, Bianchi was on that team, and he yeah he uh, he wasn't didn't play very much, but he was no, a, a much, contributor. He was a but, contributor. But that was that was Wilt's um, first championship, and it took a little bit of the sting out of all the business of. Of um, of how he was a loser, which really dated back to when North Carolina beat Kansas in the 1957 championship in right. triple overtime. So yeah. Wilt, Wilt is a is a major figure in 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 my in in my book and uh, and one of I think one of the more intriguing athletes that I met through the years. Doug, Tom with Frank the Four. Name of the book is called Overtime: My Life as a Sports Writer and. and and Frank, I mentioned before I we went on, enjoyed reading the book. Great stories, uh, similar to you talking about Wilt Chamberlain. You talk about uh, uh, your friendship and, and covering uh, the great Arthur Ashe, another tremendous figure, not only in sports but uh, culturally and, and kind of politically. What what he kind of went through, what he stood for. Uh, can you can you tell a story or two about Arthur Ashe? Well, certainly. I think I was probably closer to Arthur than any other athlete, and and um, we went together to South Africa when he broke the color line there. I traveled with him and really lived with him. And uh, that was in 1973, and it was it was a major um, earth-shaking, one could say, event in South Africa. It was the first time that the South Africans had ever allowed a, a, a black to be uh, in competition with whites. And, he, and there was a major tournament in those days, the South African Open. I mean, it was not just a rinky-dink thing. Connors won the tournament, beat Ash in the finals. But much more important than that was was the fact that Arthur was this this pioneer. And right. because because of what he did, open that curtain just a little bit, put let the sunshine in. Uh, the South Africans were never able to, to, to close it back up again, and it was an, only another 20 years or so before Nelson Mandela, a black man, was the president of South Africa. And at the time that Arthur went, the idea that that would have been the case, nobody, nobody in the world would have would have believed that. So it was a really a significant event. You know, 
we as sports writers get to cover big games. It's not very often that we get to cover something that's really truly big, and that was the one occasion where I had that opportunity. You know, it was interesting because uh, for all the years that uh, you followed golf, Gary Player was always a little bit criticized because he never really opened it up. He was a great, I mean, tremendous golfer and a tremendous person and uh, seemed to be uh, very liberal in all his ideas, but was never really a spokesman for, for uh, opening it up. Well, it was it was very difficult um, for, for any South African to go, to go against his government. Um, it, it really was a, a closed shop at that time. There were a couple of tennis players, Cliff Drysdale and Ray Moore, and they were pretty outspoken, but they also left the country. Right. Both of them, both of them became Americans, American citizens, and, and I think most people had to, in South Africans had to make that decision that if they were going to stay in South Africa, they had to pretty much support apartheid, whether or not they did conscientiously, they did and publicly, and, and, and Player made that decision for, for himself. But, but Arthur did change things. He was a significant uh, cultural figure, there's no question in my mind. He and Billie Jean King, who was you know, pretty much his contemporary, it's sort of odd that the two tennis players were the ones who played such a sociological role, but they did. And not only well, the political aspect uh, of Arthur Ashe, but obviously the, you know, the, the tragedy, unfortunately, of going through the, the health issues with the heart problem, and then uh, the transfusion, which unfortunately gave him the AIDS. But the way he handled that whole thing with the class and dignity uh, really, I think, helped a lot of people going through that at that time. Or actually, that was kind of the beginning of what we heard about AIDS. It was, um, I can only describe Arthur as noble. I don't think I would apply that to, to many people, but he was. And, and also, you know, he told a few people when he found out that he had AIDS, and he said, you know, asked us to keep it in secret. But like all secrets, the, the word began to get out. And a lot of reporters, several of them anyway, um, found out. But they kept the secret even though they weren't bound to because of their respect and their affection for Arthur. I think it's amazing. In a, you know, in this journalistic world, we're always looking for scoops that here these writers had a scoop, had a great scoop, and, uh, and and kept it to themselves. And that, that was really an honor to to, to Arthur Ashe. Um, he, he, when it was finally revealed by USA Today that he did have AIDS, um, he only had a few months to live, as it turned out, and I think he found out during that short period of time how beloved he was. Uh, the outpouring for him was extraordinary. So uh, I was just very, very lucky to be covering tennis, um, which you know was not the, ma the most major of sports, but I, I was covering it at a time when so many important things were happening. This is the 40th anniversary of Title IX, and of course Billie Jean King played such an important role in, in bringing little girls into sports. Boy, <laughs> she, did she ever! She really did. did. I mean, she, she really changed the attitude of. of the way both men and women look at sports. And, and she's, I think, along with Jackie Robinson, as important a figure as we've ever had in sports. Frank DeFord is our guest. Over time, My Life as a Sports Writer is the name of the book. And, uh, of course, uh, long-time association with Sports Illustrated. But uh, back in the early 90s, Frank, uh, 
Uh, you went on to uh, become the editor-in-chief of, of The National, which uh, uh, made a big splash, but uh, unfortunately didn't last long. I thought it was a great paper, but uh, I guess it was just uh, just kind of the cusp there of, uh, of newspapers not quite being able to sustain themselves. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, we made a splash, all right. We made a splash of red ink. We, we lost 150 million dollars in 18 months, uh, and um, it was a it was a noble experiment. Let's call it that. And I do think I'm, I'm probably the worst person to to be the judge of the national, but but I think that most people who read it thought it was a terrific product. Unfortunately. It was a disaster as a commercial enterprise. We, we couldn't deliver it. That's what really sunk Was the it the mail, mailing subscriptions, Frank? Or oh, no, it's not mailing. Cause you're, if, you, if you're mailing, that's easy. You just drop yeah. it in the mailbox. Uh, anybody can do that. <laughs> the trouble with newspapers is so that you have to have them on somebody's front step the next morning, and everybody wanted the, the late scores, too, and... Uh, it just was spread too thin. It just cost too much money per issue to get it delivered. Mm. And, and the the odd thing is that I remember being questioned about the success of the potential success of the paper when it before it opened, and nobody really saw that. They all said, "Will you be able to get enough advertising? Will you be able to get enough readers? Are there that many people who really care?" And all that. But nobody foresaw the distribution problems, which turned out you know, to really sink our ship. Which was too bad because I think we were a great product. We were sort of the last great newspaper adventure because it wasn't long after that that the internet came along and, and changed, you know, the whole newspaper landscape. But it was a it was an amazing uh, two years that I spent there, and and, uh, and we had a great camaraderie. That's all I can say. We, we, <laughs> We we were all very proud of what what we did, and most of the guys went on to bigger and better jobs. It was it was a um, it was a good mark. It was a gold mark against your name if you worked for the national. Well, we've uh, touched on a number of sports and uh, a number of sports idols and and sports celebrities. Uh, how about baseball? What's your what's your top story on the baseball front? Uh I had a. Wonderful time with, with your, your Philadelphia for, with with Richie Ashburn. Oh boy, mm. Richie, uh, <laughs> Whitey, 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 Rich, Whitey, <laughs> Whitey. Um, I was doing a story on Bill Tilden, the great tennis player who, oh yeah, sure, last was a was a pedophile, and nobody ever really written about that while he was alive, mm. and uh, and so this was. Well, about 15 years after Tilden was dead, and I was writing about it. And, uh, and of course, Tilden was from Philadelphia, so I was spending a lot of time there. And one day, out of the blue, I get a call from 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 Whitey, from Richie Asper. And I I hadn't seen him since he'd retired, you know, 10 years before. Right. And and he said, um, you know, I understand you're doing the story on Tilden. I said, yeah. Well, Rich, it turned out this. That he was from. Richie Ashburn was from Tilden, Nebraska. That's right. And he was always fascinated by Bill Tilden because of that connection. And the other thing was that after he his baseball career had ended, he had become a very good club tennis player. So he had an interest in tennis too. 
And squash. So he said, when, when are you coming back to Philadelphia again? And I said, I don't know, whatever it was, uh, next Thursday. He says, well, would you like me to drive you around? And I said, sure. So for the next two or three days, my chauffeur was Rich Ashburn. <laughs> and he, it was off season. It was the middle of the winter. He, you know, he was waiting to go to spring training as an announcer. He kind of looked like a chauffeur. You know? He wore a little soft cap and he smoked a pipe. <laughs> and he was the best chauffeur I ever had. And we traveled all over Philadelphia together. Uh, and and uh, I, I remember, I remember Whitey very, very fondly. We had a um, wonderful, wonderful time together. I remember that story you wrote about Bill Tilden, and of course, uh, everybody in Philadelphia, they had talked about it for years, but you were the first one that actually wrote anything. Yeah, it, it embarrassed people in tennis, so they kind of pushed it under the rug. There's still no, there's nothing that's named for Tilden, there's no honor, I mean, he's, he's you know, he's, as far as tennis is concerned, he's a disgrace, even though he may have been, for his time, certainly the greatest player. You know, he was he was absolutely extraordinary. But, well, you can I, say the same thing about Pon, Poncho Gonzalez too. He was one of the great players Gonzalez of all time, and, and another guy that scared people. Oh man, he scared me. Oh, he just look at me, and I just would wilt. I mean, he, I, I remember one time I was seeing him in a tournament. This is back in the days when the when the pros are making you know no money at all. Every was all right. Shamsher tennis and Gonzalez and. We're up at Newport, and his, he's playing somebody, and his wife shows up around the third game. I mean, it wasn't, you know, and he stops right in the middle, and he looks at her in a loud voice. He says, you'd be late for your own father's funeral. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, don't think Doug, I don't think Doug would remember, but there was a period of time uh, when, he, when he was suspended. And, uh, I read I about saw that, him. yeah. I saw him practicing down in Florida. I was down in Florida at the time, and, and I, I was always a tennis enthusiast, although I wasn't as good as Whitey was, but I I'd always loved to play with Whitey on the road. And uh, so consequently, uh, uh, I had the pleasure of, of uh, seeing Gonzalez a number of times and talking to him and so forth when he was suspended for that year and he couldn't play. And uh, uh, he was something, boy. I mean, he – but I – he, he used practice balls, and he's the only guy I ever saw that actually split a ball. I mean, he actually <laughs> – I, I mean, I never saw that happen with anybody. I, I mean, I've seen, the you know, the greatest servers in the world, but I've never seen anybody to get – and they were practice balls. They weren't, they weren't, you know, tournament balls. But still, I never saw a guy actually break a ball except Gonzalez. <laughs> I believe it. He was, he was a well of a player, and he lost oh. most of his best years because he was – you know, he went pro when tennis was still a fake sport, was still a amateur sport, and and it was a shame that that was the case. But you know, finally, finally they made honest men and women out of tennis players. But uh, <laughs> it, it was a great sport to cover. I, I mean, you know, because you in basketball you go to Wichita, Kansas, and in uh, tennis you go to Paris and London. It took me a while to figure that out. <laughs> Well, he became a, a, a pretty decent. I, did a lot, uh, I, I saw a lot of the world covering tennis. It may not have been as big as football, but it sure got me into a lot of places. Well, I'm about halfway through Unbroken right now, and uh, <laughs> uh, quite a book and quite a story. And uh, uh, I didn't realize the the, uh, uh, the 
similarities in the early part of the book to Secretary. She she must be a uh, <laughs> uh, consumed with speed, whether a racetrack or whether it's a human being. <laughs> hey, Frank, what do you make of the whole uh, bringing up to date with the the Belmont last week? Uh, as a longtime sports writer, are you a little uh, suspicious of what we saw with the scratch of I'm not another? Suspicious, but I tell you what, I, I I did one of my pieces for NPR, and I said I didn't want the horse to win. I got nothing against the horse, but I think that um, after 34 years, just this horse was. The trainer was under such a cloud of suspicion. Yeah. The owner was involved with all kinds of, never been caught, never never been penalized or anything. But he was all, you know, he'd been charged in, with usury in several states. And, right. And, you know, it just, just, you know, not the best people. I'd love to see a Triple Crown winner, but I'd love to see one it just really represents the sport very well and i don't think this horse did as i say i'm terribly terribly sorry the horse broke down and it would have been fabulous to have seen the horse try to win right i don't know if he, I don't know if he could nobody ever knows where the horse can go a mile right. and a half it right. looked like it had the breeding but uh it, it, in many ways <laughs> the fact that we haven't had a triple crown winner in so long is it, i think it's good for the sport because <laughs> If somebody won every couple of years, yeah, wouldn't mean anything. So, well, it's, it's like waiting for the like waiting for the Chicago Cubs to win. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People would lose interest in the Cubs if they won. I mean, that, that's right. It's, some things are meant to be. The Cubs are not meant to win, and the Triple Crown is meant to go on forever and ever and ever without a victor. Well, that's the interesting it. thing, Phil Musnick wrote a very, very strong column with your ideas in mind last week one day in the New York Post, and I have to agree with them, I mean, uh, and agree with you both. I, 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 there was just no way you could root for either the trainer or yeah. the owner. There was nothing positive about either one. Exactly. And, Frank, we have a, a phone way, caller. We, we have a Jimmy? caller, Frank, want to ask you a question. Uh, G-Man, is uh, that you on the line? Hey, good evening, guys. Great to listen to you talk. Uh, it's good to hear the legends talk about the legends. <laughs> and, and of course, and of course, in, in my case, I'm sitting here in a broken down uh, recliner, and uh, I guess no luck and uh, no talent. So, <laughs> but uh, hey, you know, sports, uh, sports really changing. It is good to hear about the legends, and uh, yeah, I understand what you think about the horse. I have the same feeling on the horse, but I have real mixed emotions about what's happening in pro sports today. I'm sitting here watching the uh, Boston Red Sox play in Miami, and there's hardly anybody in the crowd. The other day, the crowds were bad. Of course, the attendance of the race was down 25,000 for various reasons. And then I watched that uh, little boxing match. What was that, Pacquiao there, and the decision with the umps? Do you see, and the rest, do you, do you see, uh, uh, I don't think, the, the, the sports are going to be nearly like they were back in the day. I hate to use that term, but I hear that a lot anymore about back in the day. And I'm from back in the day, so I can relate pretty good with that. So I, I, I'm concerned about the direction that sports are going and uh, what kind of legends are going to be made for the, the youngsters coming up today. That is one question I have. And one little quick comment. 
my dad was an amateur tennis player, and his biggest thrill is when this unknown, when this unknown, my dad was unknown, when this guy came to Indiana to play, and uh, dad played uh, Poncho, and uh, had great memories about talking with him and warming up with him and, and getting his socks being off mine. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was uh, a wonderful memory. But anyway, well, let's get Frank's, let's get Frank's, Frank's thoughts on what he, as he looks at uh, the now and then. Uh, Frank, what, what about it? Well, I think uh, boxing is probably no better than it ever was. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the number of, of, uh, of scandals in boxing uh, go back to the beginning of time. So uh, I think it was, obviously, I didn't see the fight, but... From, from every account, it was just disgraceful that they took the decision away from Bacchio. But, but uh, I think we have come to expect that from boxing over the years. Um, and as far as, as sports today is, is, is concerned, um, you know, it, it will create heroes. Um, the, the, you know, there, there's no question that kids will find their own heroes today just as they always have the sport the sport is more commercial than it's ever been yes but it's also true that that people get to see it people see more sport because of, of television it's more important Absolutely. in our lives right. and in that sense it's it's um it's a more substantial enterprise than it ever was before and that's true all over the world. I mean, they're playing the, the European Cup in soccer right now, and, and for all the troubles in Europe, nobody cares about anything right now. Nobody cares if Spain's going bankrupt. They're caring how Spain is doing on a, on a soccer pitch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you saw the result of that 1-1 one, one tie yesterday, you'd know exactly how they feel. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so I think sport is bigger than ever before, and, and, and it'll always create... Um, heroes, and it will also always create scandals. I don't think anything's going to change that much. Well, Frank, uh, we could talk for hours with you, but I know you have a big book tour you're on, so we don't want to keep you any longer, but we appreciate your time. The name of the book is called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. We've been talking with uh, Frank DeFord today, and I guess available in all the bookstores. And uh, you have a website, Frank? People could go to that as well. Yes, I do. You go right to frankdefordbook.com. And you can read all about it there. And, and uh, as you say, it's in every store and can be ordered from uh, any Amazon or any of the other orders. So I hope you go out and read it, gentlemen. Great. Frank, let me ask, you. Frank, let me ask you one last question before you go, and that, that would all be right. with, uh, with Gumbel. What about the HBO show? Have you enjoyed doing that? Is that something I that... Uh, I love doing it. It's, it's, uh, I think it's great storytelling. It's always what I've been interested in doing. And, and uh, no, I'm not telling a story with my uh, computer or my typewriter, but I'm telling a story with the television, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful. I think we tell some great stories, and it's a great show. I'm very proud of it. Do you get to pick the stories? I pick some of them, and some of them are developed by the producers. The obscure ones tend to be developed by the producers, and then every <laughs> okay. now and then. Uh, but it's you know television is much more of a collegial enterprise than writing is. Writing is a much more personal, individual thing. But either way, the result is to tell good stories, and I hope we do that. Well, I'll join Doug and say thank you very, very much for joining us, and uh, I'll give uh, Honor's daughter a call and tell her to pick up the book. Uh, she'll be thrilled that you uh, got a little note in there about her. Thank you very much, guys. Love talking to you. 
I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America, isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids, right here at home in the United States of America.